Hey, common scientists. This week, we are going to be telling you a bit about a man from history. His name was George Washington Carver. He's most commonly known for his association to peanuts. However, he was a bit more magical than that. And to kick it off, I want to start with a quote that I think really captures our common science approach to life and also will give you just a tad bit of an idea of what George Washington Carver was like as a man. He says this, when you can do the common things of life in an uncommon way, you will command the attention of the world. And I think in some ways that's what common science is all about. It's about doing things in an uncommon way that should really be common, like asking questions about the world and learning about people and things in science that can teach you and teach you to learn and teach you to be a better learner. So with that, I wanna kick it to Dre for a bit of background on George Washington Carver, a incredible figure in history. Carver was born in 1865 into slavery and he passed away in 1943 just giving some reference of the type of environment he was raised in. He was an agricultural scientist and inventor. He was born in Missouri, and he was orphaned and ended up being raised by his mother's slave owners. They ended up teaching him and his brother how to read and write <clears throat> since he could not go to school. Many times when he would travel around like searching for schools, um, he would run into, of course, racism, and there was a time or two where he witnessed a lynching as a kid, and that was kind of what motivated him to find a way out of Missouri <laughs> in Kansas. Um, and yeah, I guess that's kind of <laughs> what I have for. for uh, um, I didn't want to take too much of Aiden Shine. <laughs> no, no worries. Yeah, Dre and I are just gonna tag team a little bit of background on on G. W. Carver. Uh, one thing that I just like to note too that I had come across is I think that his his date of birth is a little uncertain given that he was born a, a slave and and there's limited records around that uh yeah when he where he was growing up in missouri black people were not allowed to go to public school and so he went to school a school for black children 10 miles south in neosha neosho missouri and when he reached the school he found the school closed for the night slept in a nearby barn and uh on his own account like according to his own account he met a kind woman named mariah watkins and one of uh one quote he had written down and actually cherished quite a bit uh from mariah watkins is you must learn all you can and then go back out into the world and give your learning back to the people and i think that that quote resonated with him uh says a lot about his his philosophy going forward uh from his his young life uh he became the first black student at iowa state uh after the civil war i believe um and then received his master's of science degree and despite occasionally being addressed doctor he never actually officially received any doctorate um yeah i'll let i'll let dre take it from there so he ended up one of the um, when he first left Missouri, 
um, slash Kansas, he ended up attending Simpson College for a semester at art, and his art teacher was absolutely mm, um, mm-hmm. enthralled with him. He was a great artiste before he ever became the man, the peanut man. <laughs> <laughs> and his art teacher, um, actually noticing his Carver's um, natural affinity for and you know just supreme um, talent for agriculture, encouraged him to actually enroll and study agriculture. So along with that amazing quote that you shared with that teacher, um, this art teacher also um, encouraged him and helped him along his journey, inspired him to pursue his career and become the man and the legend that we know today. After um, graduating, he ended up getting a job at Tuskegee Institute down in Alabama by none other than the Booker T. Washington. So pretty cool gigs there. And they end up working together for many, many, many years and becoming lifelong friends. Aiden, you look like you want to hop in. Oh, um, I'm just like, I'm just admiring it because, yeah, I, I think, or it's just putting a smile on my face because the power of an educator is huge. Yes. And uh, I think it, it is inspiring to hear such a story as an educator as well uh, and, and think of. Oh, maybe I don't think there will be another George Washington cover, but um, maybe some of my teachings might uh, have a positive impact going forward. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. He was at Tuskegee uh, at the appointment by Booker T. Washington. And yeah, I'll let you keep, yeah. keep with it. So I really I had not actually stumbled upon the quote that you talked about, but on um, that did obviously resonate with him. And that was kind of a mantra that he must have lived by, because even on his tombstone, um, he, it read he could have had fortune and fame, but caring for neither found happiness and honor and being helpful to the world. And so why is why is he the peanut man? Where did these peanuts come from? Well, George Washington Carver being born a slave his family being former slaves, right? Of course, being born right at the end of the Civil War. He had a huge heart and sense of purpose for making black people in America truly free, truly self-sufficient. And in order to do that, um, they needed to become good farmers, good with the land. And what most people, and specifically black people, didn't understand was crop rotation, right? And sustainability. So the reason why peanuts came into play is because they were great for replenishing the nitrogen in the soil that was lost by cotton. And of course, black people they knew, or slave, former slaves, they knew cotton, so that's how they needed to make money, so they were just completely devastating the land. So he taught them, his you know, black brothers and sisters, crop rotation and how to make the most out of this and how not to completely leave your land arid and barren and lose all of your income and become self-sufficient so that you can feed yourself, your family, and also make an income. I found some background, too, that said outside of Peanuts, which we have this weird association of his life with, he also looked at uh, crops such as soybeans. And for those in the Midwest and for any farming families, uh, both my grandparents did some farming and my grandpa Dale still does. That's something that's real and still practiced today, the use of soybeans more in the Midwest, I think, than Peanuts. Uh, to rotate your crops with to replenish the soil so outside of being the peanut man whatever that means uh, crop rotation and teaching this skill whether he was the one who came up with it or not I don't think so was really important 
Yeah, I think uh, this, so we've brought up a number of quotes uh, that we've come across, but I think this uh, <laughs> continues to demonstrate his, uh, his, the importance of his advocacy and his, his uh, education of others in, in the, in particular, in terms of the, of scientific agriculture. So in, in his, uh, in his work, the need of scientific agriculture in the South is what it was called. The virgin fertility of our soils and the vast amount of unskilled labor have been more of a curse than a blessing to agriculture. This exhaustive system for cultivation, the destruction of forests, the rapid and almost constant decomposition of organic matter have made our agricultural problem one requiring more brains than of the North, East, or West. Um, yeah, so that's just, on the one hand, an example or a further example of his, uh, his advocacy for uh, more informed farming and, and helping those who were uninformed and as well just kind of the uh, importance of, of using evidence and learning from mistakes. In a similar vein, I think a lot of the materials that he developed were free. So we talk about sometimes on the Common Science cast, Open Science, which is the concept of making science accessible and free for people to use. And I think part of Dr. or just, uh, I guess that's debated, but part of Carver's legacy then was that he provided open science. He provided uh, simply written, like free brochures, it looks like, based on my research, that included cultivation techniques, even recipes for nutritious meals, as well as the practical farming methods like crop rotation. So. I mean, a huge advocate for learning. Yeah, I'm not sure how, like, free from a financial respect his works were, but at the very least, he was very focused on on popularizing and, and writing to a more broad audience than hmm, the, according the to, scientific according journals. According to Tuskegee University, he did develop and innovate a series of free simply written brochures oh cool for individuals. Okay. so unless the university that he worked for for years and years uh, is wrong that i just should be wasn't true. sure i was just double yeah just double checking um yeah because he also uh had a few commercial ventures uh, that, <laughs> uh yeah he he filed three patents and none were commercially successful he worked for years trying to develop a, a company for marketing his products uh, and yeah he none were successful he but yet we think of him as the peanut guy he was very focused on on peanuts and growing peanuts uh, one common myth to harken back to the the myths and, and misinformation podcast uh, is that he's often mistakenly credited with the invention of peanut butter. So yeah, what, what were your thoughts, Dre, when you, when you came across that tidbit? Did you, did you think he had invented peanut butter at the start of the of your I, research? Yeah, I don't think I was too surprised um, preparing for this podcast because I believe I'd heard that before. Um, however, yeah, I think it, it's obviously a little bit jarring because even like I said to you guys before the podcast, go down to the Minneapolis Trader Joe's 
right next to the peanut butter section, there is an image of George Washington Carver implying that, yes, he did invent peanut butter. Uh, so, yeah, pr pretty hilarious. He did not invent peanut butter. However, he did invent 300 uses for peanuts, including shampoos, lotions, medicines, and he worked with the one and only Henry Ford to make peanut rubber for canyons during World War II. Wow. Wow, that's a fun fact. That's wild. Uh, yeah, and even beyond that, too, so you, you talk about 300-plus uses for peanuts. He also delved a little bit into sweet potatoes. Uh, and so according to... So he, he developed, I mean, many different uses, and his records include a list of the following sweet potato products 73 dyes 17 wood fillers 14 candies 5 library pastes 5 breakfast foods 4 starches 4 flowers and 3 molasses he also had listings for vinegars dry coffee and instant coffee candy after dinner mints orange drops and lemon drops and that's just sweet potatoes so <laughs> this guy Clearly, clearly a creative individual, clearly incredibly productive, influential, uh, quite involved in the environmentalist movement. Uh, I believe uh, he has been referred to as the Black Leonardo, which we can... DiCaprio? Yeah, uh, no, not DiCaprio, uh, Da Vinci. But yeah, so he, he's... Uh, a man who's who's quite inspiring w was born a slave and and yeah made huge impact on the world what stuck out to you guys most about his story or or what did you get learn most from it two things number one talking about environmentalism he worked extensively with henry ford to find alternative fuels plant-based fuels which mm -hmm. is amazing and talk about we talk about him overcoming all these obstacles especially being born a slave, but also just being constantly ahead of the curve, constantly beyond his time is absolutely insane. And then regarding the black Leonardo da Vinci, it, like being called the black Leonardo da Vinci is right. much different than being called the, the peanut guy. So it's like, the right. fact, like, oh my gosh, lies my teacher told me, come on, like this is insane. And me and Aiden obviously were a little bit thrown when we found out that he did not invent peanut butter. But Lauren, you said something even more shocking at the, at, before the podcast that you had never even heard of George Washington Carver. Yeah, probably my like, I don't know, middle school or high school history teacher might roll over in their grave or something. <laughs> but yeah, I I did I did not have any conscious recognition to the name. It sounded like. It sounded maybe familiar. Like but... George Washington? Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, it's, that seems like something I might maybe should know. But, yeah, I had no no idea. However, I don't know that having no idea is any worse than thinking that he was just the peanut guy. So, no, I mean, yeah. yeah right. somebody's, <laughs> gu somebody's guilty. Right. And somebody's, point being, yeah. whether you think he's the peanut guy or you can't even remember him ever being brought up, it's like we have... Gr People who know about him, Time Magazine, calling him the Black Leonardo da Vinci. We would never call Leonardo da Vinci, whatever. I don't even know, like the yeah, guy, like some. We would never belittle him to that degree. Yeah. So it's, it's sad that he's not a household name, right? You say Leonardo da Vinci, and I'm like, 
wow, genius. Yeah, one smartest man ever lived. Right. Yeah. And you say George Washington Carver, and I'm like, they're no, obsessed nothing. with peanuts. Probably there, took baths with them. Like needs, this weird, wacky idea. There ideas needs to be on. a movie made about them. I think there might be though. There's not to yeah. And a quick Google. yeah, a quick Probably Google not. search revealed revealed only like documentaries. I say a six, kind of yeah. over dramatized Netflix series, right? Like his life seems absolutely remarkable. And I can only imagine similar to like a Tesla. I can only imagine who he was as like a person, mm-hmm. right? To be able to have that mentality and to constantly con- to be like really living your life amongst kings. He was uh, friends with Henry Ford, friends with Booker T. Washington, advisors with FDR and other presidents. <clears throat> so he was, I mean, and I thought someone else said another, said another big name earlier as well. But he was constantly putting, reaching down to pick up his fellow black men and former, or sorry, black people and former slaves. And just like you said, Lauren, giving things out for free, having open access, which is common science is obviously weird. That's one of the gaps we're trying to bridge. And um, so, yeah, remarkable, remarkable guy. Yeah, I think one um, one piece that I found in my research that maybe gives a bit more context uh, or, or maybe gleans a bit about what he was like as a person and what he believed in in order to be able to stand up to, I mean, the massive institution and oppression that were against people of I mean black people of the time and I mean just all of these things that he overcame and I think that this poem does a good job of maybe giving a bit of yeah context about who he was as a person it's cited as his favorite as his favorite poem um and it can be heard he can be heard reciting it at an audio station at the George Washington Carver Museum and I guess it's quite an inspiring video as he does cite it, his favorite poem. So I'll just read a couple stanzas. I'd encourage you to look it up. The poem is called Equipment, and it is by Edgar A. Guess. And here is a, here are a couple of stanzas. You are the handicap you must face. You are the one who must choose your place. You must say where you want to go, how much you will study, the truth to know. God has equipped you for life, but he lets you decide what you want to be. Courage must come from the soul within. The man must furnish the will to win. So figure it out for yourself, my lad. You were born with all that the great have had. With your equipment, they all began. Get hold of yourself and say, I can. So those are just like the last two stanzas, and I think they're immensely powerful. I think of all the times I I have excuses for not being able to get to what I want to in life. And I think about George Washington Carver, and I feel, yeah, I, my excuses don't hold up. Yeah, with your equipment, they all began coming from someone who was born a slave, like, Absolutely remarkable. He's like my new hero. He's like my new favorite guy. <laughs> yeah. Like I had, yeah, I'm blown away. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just, it is, it's in, incredibly true in a way, too, uh, when I think about, I mean, there are so many 
it, it's crazy how many barriers he faced like his his name uh i think so what i had come across was that his slave owner's last name was carver so he would go by uh carver's george uh until I th the maria his the first woman who had taken an interest in him in public school uh was like oh like let's let's change that because uh, yeah I, I mean it's just it's mind-boggling that somebody can come so far uh and it is also then humbling to myself to be uh yeah struggling with my own personal resistance uh to to create or to work out or to whatever that personal uh goal might be it just it feels like it, it pales in comparison so yeah like like you said dre i think he's he's for sure a, a role model uh and should serve as a role model for more more people i also was pleased <laughs> biasedly pleased to see his association and integration of faith and science and as a Christian, that made me excited, even in the poem choice of his favorite poem and in some of his quotes that are celebrated today, that he integrated a holistic approach to knowledge that included and embraced faith and inquiry in, in a quest for truth. And whether you're a believer in God or not, I think the integration of the unknown in the question searching is what in a common science context too is really powerful being willing to integrate fields that are maybe at odds at times to answer complex questions is so powerful at a time that it was unheard of in some ways could you so i didn't actually come across much of that in my research and that's just because what I'm biased to, to research I'm curious like more about what his religious inter integration with science might have looked like I think from what I saw in my reading and primarily this is coming from Tuskegee University um, is that and also in a lot of his communication if you read anything that he wrote uh, or like things that he spoke were in his communication methods that faith and God is integrated in nature and in science. I can look for a couple of the quotes that I thought were powerful, but I think primarily in his approach to science, specifically that there might be some unknown or that there might be some, like some God involved, almost and this is this is my speculation now that it maybe almost allowed some clarity in the focus of his research as opposed to like asking those questions does god exist or asking how that relates to science he seemed to be quite sound in like the existence of god and then i mean yeah this is all speculation but basically what his written communication showed was that he just believed that they were integrated yeah so your hypothesis there was that he was uh, more perhaps grounded in his work and more 
productive as a, like because he didn't he wasn't wasting as much time yeah, speculating about hypothesis. whether or not God exists. Yeah, that's my hypothesis. Hmm. <clears throat> Why are you guys waiting on me to talk? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah. No, yeah, I didn't. I wasn't able, which is why we got the awkward pause, to formulate anything that I thought was like worth kind of responding to that. But I do agree with that. Like that is good to point out, or and like cool that that was something that you found really important, Lauren, to have that perspective and how that influences you. And I th- I think you're hundred percent onto something that having, and as you would know personally, keeping a perspective with God first or with the idea that the universe is God's dominion definitely gives you something. Um, when even in, like, even when we, we talked about this before, even when everybody wants to pit science and God against each other, but it's just like, well, whichever one is true, the other one will be other under its domain. So it's like, there's not really, it's kind of like a false dichotomy and a false kind of like opposition to me. Yeah. So two quotes, I think that help, that help show or elucidate what I think is so, I mean, just inspiring about his position about God. Here's one quote from him. I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting system through which God speaks to us every hour if we will only tune in. Mm. And in previous conversations we've talked talked about god being synonymous with math and i mean some other extrapolations you can think of in the context of that quote is like if we only tune in to nature to the universe so i thought that was quite um impactful and then the other one was Mm, here it is Our creator is the same and never changes despite the names given him by people here and in all parts of the world. Even if we gave him no name at all, he would still be there within us waiting to give us good on this earth. And I think that also highlights a personal sentiment about the division among faith and science and then further division among faith and faith groups that it like it might just be way more complex than we think and that if there were a creator he's likely much bigger than all of the conflict and i think george washington carver as a figure who just was seemingly larger than life and did such amazing things and stood for such amazing work ethic and change in science and change in farming and all these things uh is powerful yeah i think there. I think you're you're onto something, Lauren, as well, and I appreciate your your perspective on on it because yeah, I didn't I didn't research it because that that just wasn't within my cognitive biases uh, to desire to research it, but uh, I think that yeah, there there is like Dre said, a false dichotomy between science and religion and whether or not whether or not god is is there um yeah like like you said dre there's so much overlap they're both trying to describe the universe and and i think one immense value that religion has is having like a code of ethics 
that has been developed over generations that then an individual doesn't need to try to develop from scratch uh, within their lifetime and, and and that could that could that also could uh, play into Lauren your hypothesis of him being such a creative individual throughout his lifetime uh, but yeah anyways just more Okay, one More more one more tidbit and then we we can talk about some other aspect but uh i I just i thought this was really powerful too this piece what i'm going to read now is written by the university so obviously it's caked with their own biases but certainly it supports my own so that's why i'm going to read it (laughs) dr carver's practical and benevolent approach to science was based on a profound religious faith to which he attributed all his accomplishments. Now, this is something I already kind of explained. However, they go on to say, he always believed that faith and inquiry were not only compatible paths to knowledge, but that their interaction was essential if truth in all its manifold complexity was to be approximated. And yeah, man, that just really gets to the heart of what I believe and how I believe science and faith and or science and something bigger than science or they might even be one and the same are integrated that it's not only compatible but that it's essential if truth in all its manifold complexity is to be approximated i I think the the very last word approximated like truth to be approximated like there's all this these camps those camps ideological warfare uh, going on between science and religion or capitalism and socialism or whatever it might be republican democrat uh but one thing that is a driving force behind i think this podcast and and like throughout my life is just trying trying to get closer to the truth because i i mean i don't know if we'll ever have uh a theory of everything uh like i I think all we can do is is approach uh the limit and and have open dialogue and try to merge theories if they need merging or cast them aside if they need casting aside but not to the expense of like asking questions, having civil conversation, and coming to conclusions. Uh, Dre, what else stuck stuck out to you in particular in, in your research about George Washington Carver? <clears throat> One thing is like I like we've talked about. I've talked about how inspirational it is for him to overcome all these obstacles and this is Mm -hmm. just kind of like a general quandary that i have and that i see in life is that so many times it's like the whole saying that pressure makes diamonds and it's like yes we can think of george carver as this unstoppable force that bulldozed his way through any possible barrier to be sitting on the top of mount Mount olympus of genius minds in human history but sometimes i wonder too is it's like how like who, who if he doesn't have these obstacles if he doesn't have adversity and, and other geniuses of the world and other people who just accomplish great things athletes or whoever sometimes i just i just wonder that not to say that i 
obviously, I, like, you know, slavery's not a good thing just because it's, <laughs> George Washington started off as a slave or George Carver did. I'm right. not saying anything like that. But sometimes, like, things like that, when I hear people's stories like this, I'm like, who is that person without the adversity? And that just really fascinates me. And that's just like, kind of a question that I pondered thinking about him and maybe really want to go in. And kind of Lauren was, seemed like she was dabbling in a little bit more. Maybe want to go into, like, I want to get, like, a whole book of his journal entries. I want a whole book of letters he wrote to presidents and uh I don't know if he had a wife or whatever, like family members and all that. That's what I really want to say. Like, who is this man? Like, what was actually within his brain? Because I'm looking at obviously the fruits, but I want to see the process. And I don't think that a documentary, which I'm going to watch though now, <laughs> this is my guy. I'm never going to watch one, but I just don't think that that's really going to give it to me specifically because my school told me he was a peanut guy. So I'm like, right. I don't know what the documentary is going to tell me. You know, I don't trust these guys anymore. But maybe uh, you should write a book on it. Maybe. On him. Maybe. I, I got to get a hold of the journal entries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a compelling thought. And there has been research that has um, attributed success of individuals to disasters and actually specifically to the loss of a parent mm. for a child. I think there was a Harvard study that's mentioned in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books that I've read, I can't remember which one at the off the top of my head, but we'll link it in the notes, that talks about the loss of a parent being actually like one of the single best indicating metrics for success. Like like that CEOs or something like that is disproportionately high. I'll have to link it, but think, there has been research. For I think in that extraordinary space. success specifically, right? Yeah. Like where your extraordinary and creativity too, mm-hmm. like so the capacity to, yeah, build organizations in the case of CEOs or, or yeah. create works of art, but yeah, it's a, it's a hard, thought experiment though because that would almost necessitate. Mm-hmm. hardship and as an empathetic human as many of us are that sounds not quite right right yeah and you have a lot of these guys um like jordan peterson's and maybe like jackals and even joe rogan's and stuff like that that are kind of promulgating this idea that not only is life is suffering inevitable but it's actually like desirable right they say, oh, don't get UBI because then everybody's going to be like sissies who don't want to work and this and blah, blah, blah. And they're going to be lazy and they won't accomplish anything. And just like, so you guys want to leave? And I hear this a lot with like Ben Shapiro type of people, like these yeah. bootstrap guys. It's like, so you want to like leave people wallowing and squalor in order to like get a couple diamonds in the rough? Like, you know, it's just like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Something doesn't add up there. Yeah. <laughs> Although I thought that uh, who the philosopher who talks about meaning logotherapy, Victor Frankl, Victor Frankl, I thought he put it well when he talked about suffering for a purpose, purposeful suffering, and that people can suffer through almost any. Why is that right? So he who so this is a quote from Nietzsche that Viktor Frankl quotes often. It is that he who has a why can bear almost any how. Uh, yeah, 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 and Viktor Frankl just I think expanded on that in in his book, in one of his books, and I thought that that was really enlightening. In in this conversation, is like 
if you can have a purpose to your suffering, then of course it will be fruitful. Like, of course, if you can find purpose in your suffering, it can be fruitful and logotherapy can help with that. Yeah. And in that case, I don't think that all these people squandering would necessarily need to be squandering if they had or could find purpose to their suffering. So I don't know if you followed yeah. the thought experiment, but I think um, one example in particular that Viktor Frankl brings up that yeah really struck home that message was a man who came into his office struggling so much so with depression after his wife had died uh like years of suffering and he comes in to victor frankl's office who's a psychotherapist and uh, a logotherapist psychiatrist sorry well, yeah, anyways, he's a, he's a psychiatrist, and he, um, what he said to this man was, well, you suffer, so your wife did not have to suffer had you passed before her. And so, and then he, he just, like, squeezed Victor Frankl's hand, left the office, and he, uh, yeah, went about his life, and he suffered with meaning. So I do... I do and this is definitely a bit of a, a tangent from, I think, some of your points, Dre, about this message that, like, you got to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh, and and suffer because that'll create, like you said, the, the, the diamond in the rough. rough. Uh, I think that, I think, yeah, again, like we talked about a bit ago about approaching trying to approach truth and like that it is somewhere in the middle like we can afford people some security not so much so that they become like the people in Wally where they're like hooked up to TVs and overweight and driving around in their little <laughs> vehicles but uh yeah like provide enough that they they don't have to worry about starvation or whatever else and the opportunity to yeah uh, create but anyways yeah yeah <clears throat> i agree there's i mean with everything nothing's black and white with humans and it, there's a nuance to it and there is a difference between meaningful suffering suffering and hopelessness mm -hmm. there is a difference between understanding that mm -hmm. People who suffer, uh, Harvard study, people who lose their parents have a tendency to like blossom into these creative people and these resilient people and all this type of stuff versus like twisting that argument, which I've heard sometimes. And I apologize to any of the popular names I used earlier if I misrepresented you. My bad. But <laughs> um, I did not mean to do that. I mean to slander you. But twisting that into like a an argument against UBI essentially or right. any sort of program social program that is going to lift people and give people a higher social net so that for example when I was in San Diego last week I wasn't constantly looking at I was trying to look up at the sky and enjoy the sun but I was constantly looking at my feet because there's human shit on every block and it's like well right I don't know what chance do these people have um, right. like you know like what, what what meaning in their suffering is there right. um yeah but 
yeah i think i think the delineation there between hopelessness and uh like the purposeful suffering uh is huge like george washington carver yeah he was born a slave but there was still the possibility that slavery would be abolished obviously he was living through the civil war and there was still like the pos like he still he still had clear i would think some obviously you'd have to go back to the letters and things like that but he still i i would think had some vision for himself that he found achievable and he just kept working towards it every day um or at least in in the short term and then obviously it snowballed into what it what it did but yeah i i think man the analogy that you brought up of of pressure making diamonds i think is quite apt but it's like yeah what to what extent i'm not totally sure i don't know but i think it would be fitting to end with one more stanza of washington carver's favorite poem and i'll i'll read the first stanza figure it out for yourself my lad you've all the greatest of men have had two arms two hands two legs two eyes and a brain to use if you would be wise with this equipment they all began so start for the top and say i can with that common scientists we don't have all the answers we're out here asking questions trying to understand people and stories that will help us better understand the common science of our lives and seek answers where we can. As always, you can check out our website, commonscientist.com. From there, you can find other casts and other things that we're up to. We'll see you next time.